What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And yeah, have you all missed me? <laughs> I wanted to uh, post this conversation I had with Jennifer Doliak. But for those of you who missed the last episode announcing that I'm taking a break, yes, break is still going on. But make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. I have been uploading more to YouTube. I've been writing video essays over there, but I'm also still writing on Substack. Uh, work's been crazy, so I'm not producing as much content as I would like, but I am still producing content. So in case you missed it, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. But yeah, uh, Jennifer Doliak, uh, I wanted to have a quick conversation with her. You will see, uh, or hear rather, during this conversation, what it's all about. But yeah, Jennifer, uh, she has her own podcast, Probable Causation. I'm going to link it down below. She's doing uh, excellent research on the criminal justice system and everything like that. But I actually stumbled across her because as many of you know, I am a recovering opioid addict and her and uh, some other researchers, they did a study on the effects of Narcan and mortality where Narcan is being widely distributed. And this research, it actually caused a little bit of a firestorm when it first came out a few years ago. And it's because of the results. And the harm reduction community can be a little bit wacky sometimes. So it's something that I've run into multiple times because getting sober through 12-step programs and just working in treatment and seeing the different things people have tried to get sober, stay sober, and turn their lives around I have a lot of strong opinions about harm reduction. Uh, it's a little bit more nuanced where I believe harm reduction is great. I believe it saves lives. I believe that we need it. We need more access to it, everything like that. But in addition to that, I also believe that we need to be helping people by providing them with treatment so they can quit and improve their lives, right? But a lot of people in the harm reduction community, they don't see it that way. They they believe that if you criticize harm reduction or you do any research like Jennifer's doing, they will sometimes accuse you of killing people, right? But it's interesting because Jennifer's research actually shows that this form of harm reduction is actually harming people and it is at best not increasing the amount of deaths, but the amount of deaths are staying the same. So what we discussed in this episode is how we need to take a look at that and see, hey, what can we do to actually reduce the deaths? Because we are still having tens of thousands of people die every single year from overdoses. I believe the last two years in a row, we've had over 100,000 people die of overdoses. So even when we have a life-saving medication like Narcan, if those deaths aren't being reduced, we really need to take a look at that and say, hey, what needs to be adjusted here so we can start bringing that number down? Because the opioid epidemic has been going on for decades now, and it's not slowing down. So research like Jennifer's is super, super important. So yeah, I wanted to talk with her. It's actually going to be uh, for a video essay where I dive into harm reduction and her research findings and everything. But since the conversation was awesome and we talked for a little while, I wanted to take it and bring it over here for the podcast for all of you who aren't following on YouTube. This is a great conversation and it is something that all of us need to be talking about a lot more because the opioid epidemic is taking so many lives and it's not just the people who pass away that are affected, 
But like I always say, for every single person who dies of an overdose, there is a community of friends, family members, and so many others who are affected by that death. So we all need to be talking about this. All right. So anyways, like I said, make sure you head down to the description, follow Jennifer over on Twitter, check out her podcast, uh, Probable Causation. And yeah, I just realized too, she has a book coming out. She's working on a book. It might be a couple of years because I think she just got it approved not that long ago. But anyways, head down to the description, make sure you're following Jennifer. All right. Anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jennifer Doliak about her research into Narcan. Hello, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am fantastic. And I'm so glad that I came across your Twitter account. I think it was from Olga. She shared it. And uh, real quick, before we jump into the topic, can you just introduce yourself real quick for everybody who has yet to meet you? Sure. I'm Jennifer Doliak. I'm an economics professor at Texas A&M University. Um, I have my own podcast on crime and crime research called Probable Causation and just spend a lot of time trying to elevate good work uh, related to criminal justice policy to a broader audience. Beautiful. I love it. So with this paper, which kind of, you know, well, definitely intertwines with crime and everything like that, It your paper is titled the effects of naloxone access laws on opioid abuse, mortality, and crime. So can you give kind of an overview of what this research was about, what you were looking for, the results, all that good stuff? Sure. Yeah. So this is joint work with Anita Mukherjee, who is an economist at the University of Wisconsin. And what we were interested in was what happened when um, access to naloxone, uh, which I'll uh, describe more in a moment, um, became uh, more widespread. So there's a lot of so uh, this is not the height of the opioid epidemic, lots of concern about uh, increasing uh, mortality due to opioid use and naloxone, uh, which is also called Narcan often, um, it's the brand name, uh, can essentially uh, reduce the symptoms of an overdose and save someone's life in the moment if administered while someone's overdosing from opioids. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is amazing, right? It's this incredible technological uh, feat and, and amazing um, progress that can save a lot of lives. Um, but when economists like ourselves look at something like that, we worry it could have unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if this if making this drug um, extremely widespread and easily available, if that reduces the risk of opioid use by you know reducing the risk of death as it's intended, then that could lead people to more risky opioid use. So using opioids more often, using larger doses, sinking out fentanyl, all sorts of things like that, when they feel like they have this safety net. Yeah. Um, and so the net effect of that and, and how we want to think about it is certainly is, is to some extent an empirical question, to some extent sort of a philosophical and moral question yeah. that we consider as a society, but we figured we could at least provide some, some of the empirics and see what was actually going on on the ground when we looked at the data. So we, um, uh, these laws have been sort of phased in uh, over time in different states. And so we use that as a natural experiment to see what happens to trends in things like ER visits and mortality and crime rates um, in places as they adopt these um, 
these naloxone standing orders or big expansions of naloxone availability uh, in a state relative to places that expanded at different times. Um, and what we basically find is that there's a big increase in uh, ER visits for opioid um, overdoses in particular. Um, we see a little bit of an increase in crime, things like that. Some other evidence that people know about naloxone are, are seeking it out. Um, they might be less likely to be seeking out drug treatment. But what's also really interesting is we see absolutely no effect on mortality um, on average across the U.S. That varies really? a bit across different regions, but especially in, in when we're looking at, we see that big impact, big increase in ER visits that should mean lives are being saved. And so the fact that we don't, that mortality is flat suggests to us that there's a net increase uh, or an underlying increase in the amount of opioid use that's mm -hmm. going on. So you're having just more overdoses than you did before. A subset of those people are getting treatment now, their lives are being saved, but on net, that means there's no, there's no um, reduction in mortality. Um, yeah. So that's in line with kind of what, how we think about this inter as economists, where there's sort of like a risk compensation or moral hazard uh, effect here. That's sort of canceling out some of the benefits that we were hoping to get from this innovation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was first introduced to this whole like unintended consequences thing just by reading the book Freakonomics and then kind of uh -huh. like, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. So now when I saw your research, I was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and, you know, as many of people in my audience know, like I got clean from opioids 10 years ago. Really? And like when I was looking at your paper and the results, I'm like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So let me know if this is crazy for me to think. So you're talking about the mortality rates did not reduce drastically. So one of the issues that I found just working in treatment, knowing a lot of people have passed away from overdoses, by the way, real quick, I hate that overdose is used both for when you overdose and survive and when you overdose and die, it gets very confusing. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yep. because we need to figure something out with that. But anyways, <laughs> so what I would assume is because of the access to this, more people are using it. And if, if you take too much, like, because some people have to be hit like multiple times with Narcan, you think that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen mortality drop because people feel this kind of safety net. So they're abusing it more, but they're putting themselves at more risk of having so much that Narcan can't even save them, or they're in more, there's a higher likelihood of being in a situation where Narcan isn't available. Almost like if you drove more, you're more likely to get into a car accident. Is that kind of what we're thinking from this research? I think that's the way Anita and I are thinking about this. Yeah. So if you're just sort of putting yourself in more risky situations because you feel like you have a, a safety net. And so the, the driving the driving example is a great one, right? Because the other, the classic model when economists first started thinking about this moral hazard idea was Sam Peltzman came up with this idea about seatbelts, right? You put seatbelts in cars and that should, if everyone stays exactly the same and does exactly what they were doing before, we should save lives. But of course, now I have a seatbelt, so maybe I take more risks, drive a little faster, and that's going to cancel out some of the benefits. I'm just going to put myself in riskier situations than I was before. And so that seatbelt's not going to be enough to save me in some of those times. Um, and then in this case, so yeah, either Narcan or Naloxone isn't going to be uh, enough to save you. There's only one dose and you need two or something like mm -hmm. that, or, or you just, you know, uh, you get unlucky one time and they can't get you to the ER fast enough or there isn't anyone nearby um, to save you in time. And so it's just sort of that having that safety net kind of um, makes everyone a little bolder uh, in, in the risk they're willing to take. Yeah. So, so what brought you to researching this specifically? Because 
uh, you know, back, Geez, it must have been four or five years ago. Like I went through like uh, uh, a training on how to administer Narcan and stuff. I've been mm -hmm. to some local events and they'll like give away like free Narcan. And I know, and this was, yeah, like I said, maybe four or five years ago, but they were starting to in different states have it so you can like maybe even buy Narcan over the counter without a prescription, things like that. I don't think that's national yet, is it? I don't think it's national, but those are the kinds of policies that we were studying in the paper was sort yeah. of these standing orders. Anyone can walk into a pharmacy and just get it without a prescription. Yeah. Got it. So, so how does, how does this kind of stuff relate with like, for example, like our prison population? Cause prison reform is something that I could sit here and talk to you all day about, but mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of people in there for, you know, uh, nonviolent drug offenses, violent drug offenses, you know, people are either high or drunk while they're committing crimes. Mm -hmm or they're committing crimes to get high or drunk, you know? Mm -hmm. So so yeah. how does this kind of affect that aspect of, you know, people going to prison and what we know about the results of widespread naloxone use? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the connection uh, for like why I was interested in it, uh, I think part right. of it is just, I'm an economist. I like these kinds of unintended consequences stories. When I see something like this, where the conventional wisdom is, this policy mm. is going to have dramatic uh, benefits and, you know, it's changing the incentives in some way. And so, you know, someone with the, with economist training starts thinking, okay, well, you're changing the incentives. People are going to change their behavior. I wonder if I can show that in the data. So that's part of the reason that I started down this road. Um, Anito studies uh, insurance and risk. And so we were kind mm. of in that way. Um, but then, as you said, I mean, there's certainly overlapping populations here. I spent a lot of time thinking about the criminal justice involved population. Um, high, there are certainly high rates of, of drug use um, in, that, in that population. Um, and we think about opioids and other kinds of drugs are illegal. Uh, and so there's there's just a lot of conversation in crime research circles about um, illegal substance use too. So that's yeah. wasn't too far afield from my usual material. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I like how you think too, because yeah, that conventional wisdom and stuff, like I, I recently had uh, Stephen, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, but he is a data scientist and looks at a lot of this stuff and like teases uh -huh. and stuff. But anyways, he was on the podcast, but so real quick, so whenever I'm looking at a study just with my kind of layperson ability to look at this stuff, mm. like the number one rule that we we kind of have to keep in mind is how do we know this is not correlation and it's right. causation, right? Like, so when I look at it, like it makes sense to me. Like, I'm like, right. hey, I, I see this, but mm. I start to challenge it and come up with all sorts of questions like, how do I know, you know, there's not more access to opioids and it just happened around the same time? How do I know, you know, all these different factors. So, um, and we're going to dive into some of the controversy right after this, but uh -huh. <laughs> that was one of the main things that I saw people talking about as I started to go through that story. So what do you all do as an economist? Because I guess the last thing is too, I saw some debates back and forth about how economists see correlation and causation versus how some other fields do. So yeah. for lay, lay people like myself, can you break that down in the simplest terms possible when you're looking at this data and what you do to tease it apart? Yeah, sure. So, so sort of the ideal scenario, the ideal scenario um, that we would like to have in any context where we want to tell if there's a causal effect of some treatment on some outcome is to run like a lab experiment, right? We want to be able to randomize people into a treatment group and a control group. And then you've got identical people on either side and you treat the people in the treatment group and then you just compare the groups over time and see what happens. Uh, in the real world, 
that is often not possible. Um, and so economics has really over several decades now developed all of these um, statistical toolkits to help us make causal inferences using uh, non-experimental data. And the main way that we do that is we go hunting for what we call natural experiments, where we look mm. for policy changes, or we look for the way interventions are, are uh, implemented, um, looking for, for situations where uh, just the way that something was implemented sorts people into similar treatment and comparison groups. Um, so so we kind of get close to that ideal lab experiment, even though we can't actually run that lab experiment we'd like. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, what was happening, what we were taking advantage of is the fact that these naloxone uh, expansion laws, uh, especially these standing orders that we were just talking about, were adopted at different times in different states. And so we can look mm. at trends over time in different states. And if, if adopting this policy change matters, then we should, it's basically like a shock in yeah. one state that adopts it. And we should see then a change in the trends at that time in those states relative to other states. And so all the, all the states are kind of like, you know, floating along in parallel and then one state at a time gets treated and we should see a change in the trend at that time. Mm. So basically what we do, we spend a lot of time just like graphing the data, right? And so, so the main graphs in the paper basically pull all those states together and just sort of center it on the date, the year that the policy changes happened um, uh, in the states that we have in our sample. And basically what you can see is that there's uh, essentially, there are like no, everything's flat leading up to that policy change um, when we compare the kind of treated states to the mm -hmm. control states. And then at the time of the policy change, we can see, for instance, ER visits go up. And mm -hmm. so a lot of this is sort of looking for like nothing happening when we compare treatment and comparison groups ahead of time that convinces us that, or gives us more confidence that it's a good control group um, for no. the treated states. And then we wanna see like a change that looks like it's happening at the time as a result of that policy change. Um, mm. So a lot of the evidence for this and making in, uh, you know, being able to convince ourselves that this isn't just a correlation, that it's a causal relationship in this kind of context is, is visual. We make a lot of graphs and just yeah. see, like, does the data look like what it should look like if it's the law causing the change? Um, mm. But this question of like, you know, can we think of any other stories and then how can we test for those other stories to try to rule them out? That's like, that's economists' favorite game. And it is, yeah. uh, <laughs> we spend a lot of time in our papers trying to like rule out every other story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, one of the reasons uh, I even heard about this is because it recently went through peer review. Am yes. I correct on that? Correct. Yeah, so. It's officially so had, out in the journal, yeah. yeah. So you have <laughs> other people looking at it as well, right. because yeah, right. as a lay person, something I try to, you know, talk to my audience about, and I'm always reading books about it is, you know, how do we better understand these studies and what you just said makes sense. Like I would almost have to see this happening in all these different cities and states. Like it'd be hard to be like, okay, what's, what's a different reason unless you saw something else widespread that happened around mm -hmm. then. But mm -hmm. anyways, with a little bit more of your time, so. People lost their minds over this. And <laughs> here's, yeah, here's the thing. Here's why I'm so happy to have you, Jennifer, because I always get in trouble with the harm reduction community. Uh -huh. So I'm glad to have somebody else Same. who gets yeah. in trouble. Yeah. So for those who don't know, you know, there's like abstinence and harm reduction. So me, I got clean in 12-step programs. 
So they were like abstinence. I'm like, what? That's crazy. How am I never going to drink or use a drug? Da, 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 da. And I've managed to do it for 10 years. Pretty awesome. And before that, I tried, you know, even though I didn't have a name for it, I tried harm reduction. Like, oh, mm -hmm. I'll just smoke marijuana, you know, and it always led me back to opioids. Mm -hmm. Anyways, there is, uh, you know, various forms of harm reduction, right? Like, uh, you know, methadone clinics. Um, some people do like suboxone maintenance and everything. So they see naloxone as a form of uh, uh, harm reduction, right? So anyways, can you explain what, what kind of happened when you came out with this data? And, and I guess based on everything you just explained to me about all of these beautiful graphs, like mm -hmm. how, I don't know, like how, how was your experience? Like, were you going crazy? Like, hey, like you have it all right <laughs> here. Just, just open it up. <laughs> read the paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So gosh, so we, you know, we started working on this gosh, probably in 2016. And of course, like we knew it was going to be a somewhat controversial topic. And so we really wanted to kick the tires and make sure we were sure about the results, put it online in the spring of 2018, uh, which it was just published in a peer review journal, which tells you a lot about just how slow peer review is in yeah. economics, um, which is part of the reason that economists, like us put working papers online early uh, or as soon as we're kind of confident in them. Part of it is to get feedback from other people, but part of it is because frankly, our peer review process is so slow that if we waited until peer review, like nothing is relevant anymore in the policy world. And so uh, not a great system, but it is what it is. So anyway, so we put it online in, in um, spring of 2018. Uh, and as you said, people lost their minds. Um, I think you know, and, and on the harm reduction topic in particular, I still remember, I think about all the time, like someone, I can't remember who it was, tweeted something like, it can't possibly do more harm because it is, it's called harm reduction. So it can only reduce harm. I was like, okay, but like, that's yeah. the whole point, right? Like <laughs> there are lots yeah. and lots and lots of policies in this area and every other area yeah. that either don't work at all or yeah. actually do more harm than good, right? Or just it's have just terrible really names, common. right? Or have terrible <laughs> names, like just calling it harm reduction doesn't make it so, right? Yeah. And so so it is an open question, like what, uh, what the net effect of all the possible changes in behavior um, are and what the net result is going to be for the well-being or the other outcomes we care about. And so, you know, if we really care about reducing harm uh, from from drugs or from crime or whatever whatever it is we're thinking about, um, then I think we really owe it to ourselves and to society to kick the tires on these policies to make sure they're they're having the outcomes that and the benefits that we yeah. want. Um, and so it just you know it's it's funny when I when I talk with economists, I think for the most part we just we think it's like obvious that people respond to incentives and that's you know it just seems like yeah we would be very surprised if in this context we didn't see people respond to the risk in some way and so the question is really like how much of a response is there yeah and and i and i got the impression i mean actually i'm not a, i'm i was never really fully able to figure out how much of a difference of opinion there really was about that versus um i think there was a stronger sentiment in the public health community and the harm reduction community that it would very much hurt their political cause to admit mm. there could be any potential trade-offs here and that this isn't only going to bring benefits. Yeah. And, and so it was dangerous to even mention 
that this could be going on because it could give some politicians reason not to support it. And that's where it's like, as a researcher, it's like, look, that's not my job. Like I, I just, (laughs) I do the research. And let me, let me toss out another, another potential thing that could be going on Uh that you can keep uh, (laughs) in your little toolkit. And it's uh, the people who benefit from harm reduction, you know, we addicts, and it's the fact that we like to get high. So that's something else to remember. So I first experienced it and realized this about the harm reduction community from a completely different aspect than you. I was dealing with nobody in the government or making policy. It was actual uh-huh. people trying to get sober. And, you know, like on my YouTube videos, uh, I'm uh, on my YouTube channel, I made videos about like Kratom and Suboxone and things like that. And I have, you know, you know, I'm like, hey, it can help, but hopefully you're able to wean off and get therapy or do whatever you got to do. Right. And people yeah. lost their mind. I'm like, listen, if I could take Suboxone every day for the rest of my life, cool. But like, there are some downsides and everything and Kratom has withdrawals, but people don't like hearing that, you know? And I think, I I do think for some people, it comes from a place of fear, right? Like if this can't work and we're having this insane epidemic that's been going on for like two decades now, then like what? So it's easier to just say, no, it's cold harm reduction. So it must, you know, work, but and and that's that's where I feel like my brain's different because when I look at research, I'm able to like set aside my emotions. And I think mm-hmm. that's what you economists do. Like you're just like data, and you just yeah. look at it, and everybody <laughs> else, you know, it, it gets this like feeling. I'm like, hey, but that's what science is, right? Like it's gonna right. tell you things that you don't you don't want to hear. But um, I, I guess uh, with all of your other work, right, in the criminal justice yeah. system and everything like that, uh, and I'm I'm sure you've put some thought into this. Like what? What is the solution, right? Because naloxone, it does save lives, right? Mm-hmm. But on the on the larger scale, we're not seeing what we hope for. Right. So, so, you know, I'm a solutions guy. And it's like, what is the solution? So what have you tossed around in your brain, even though you're not like, you know, a politician out there trying to work on policies and stuff? Right. No, totally. Um, yeah. So so I think where I come down at the end of all this and like seeing this paper and the other papers that are out there especially on naloxone um, and following just the other opioid literature a bit. Um, it seems clear to me that like in the moment, if you have the ability to save someone's life, you save their life, right? Like that is just want to like, there are a lot of people who questioned whether I <laughs> support that. Just to be clear, I'm not supporting just wanted to let them die. letting people die who are in front of you. Like you uh. should save their life. And also we need to acknowledge that making this technology and this treatment available is likely going to increase risky opioid use, um, potentially to the point where it's not actually buying us anything in terms of a a reduction in mortality. This means that um, if we are serious about reducing mortality, we can't just do this, right? Like this alone is not gonna fix things. Um, We found some suggested evidence in our paper that like the benefits, the net benefits of increasing naloxone access seem to be bigger in places that just had more access to drug treatment in general. So, Mm. you know, if like the goal is you give people a set, you save their life and you give them an opportunity to go get treatment, then there needs to be treatment available, right? And so places that have more treatment available, you maybe saw um, better effects than in places where there wasn't. So, and there are a million other reasons to make you know, make these treatment centers more available and more affordable and everything yeah. else. One more. Um, I also, I mean, I, 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 based on everything I've read, I think, you know, uh, medication assisted treatment seems really good and we should be making it more widespread. Yeah. Um, 
seems less likely to have these kinds of unintended consequences to me. Yeah, but, because a lot of them like block opioids, so you can't even get high. Right, exactly. So we're not yeah. worried about, it's like, okay, great. I have a safety net. I'm going to go like take a bigger dose now, right? It's yeah. not the, it's, it's a different, it's going to be a different path. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think I mostly just want us all to be more humble when we're putting policy solutions out there and be, and be more willing to acknowledge that like most of the things we try are not going to work. Like yeah. that's why we're in this boat, that this boat, right? Like thing, we still have these problems because they're really hard problems to solve. And the fastest way to solve them is going to be to iterate and fail, fail quickly rather than like yeah. ign- ignore the possibility that we could fail at all. Yeah. Yeah. See, you, this is why you and I get along. It's like, <laughs> these are the things that I, I talk about with people. It's like, listen, if you want to do these things or, you know, like whether it's like, you know, medication assistant treatment, or, you know, even like uh, naloxone or like methadone clinics and everything. Okay. I'm just like, but what are we doing to make these people's lives better? You know, coming yeah. from uh, recovery, like there was a lot of things like childhood trauma, my depression and anxiety, so many things that needed help. So just mm-hmm. reviving me with something like naloxone wasn't going to prevent me from using in the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, like my girlfriend, she just got her uh, master's in social work. She's working mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, that population as well as like just people with normal mental illness. but yeah, it's like, uh, you know, we need to get people treatment. And then, and I don't know if people see that as just like, oh, well, that's too big of an issue. Like, let's just keep shooting people up, you know, it's just shoving spray up their nose and stuff. But it's yeah. like, well, we need like healthcare. We need access to treatment. Um, but quick question for you, since you are an economist, have you read Deaths of Despair from Angus Deaton and I forgot the other author? I have not. Um, in case, oh, what are you uh, doing? I have not read the full book, but I yeah. am familiar with their with their yeah. research. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. recently, I recently just gave it another read, and mm-hmm. yeah, they they talked a lot just about you know just the way our our country has become with growing wealth inequality yeah. and things. Yeah. So so yeah, I'm I'm the type who likes to get to the root of the problem and not waste time on things that aren't working. And it yeah. seems like we need to improve the lives of people so they're not so miserable that they want to get high. But <laughs> That might just be me talking crazy. <laughs> that <laughs> but, sounds hard. I mean, I think there's, I have um, other work on uh, very different contexts, but ban the box policies, um, which uh, the, the goal is to help people with criminal records, get their foot in the door, mm. to get jobs. You basically take the question about whether you have a criminal record off job applications. That's the right? ban policies. Sounds great. Um, the problem, and this is another uh, place uh-oh. where like my economist brain was like unintended consequences, right? Um, if employers don't want to hire someone with a criminal record and they can't ask anymore, they might just try to guess. And who are they, um, they going to guess has a criminal record? It's, you know, black men, uh, mm-hmm. based on, um, numbers in our, in our country. And so what we wind up seeing is a net reduction in black employment when ban the box policies go into effect, which is like obviously not what we wanted and uh, not good for a variety of reasons. But I think what that would ban the box has in common with naloxone in my view is that both of these policies feel really cheap and easy. It's yeah. like a magic fix, right? So the politicians that want to signal that they care about this and that they're doing something, this feels like an easy thing to do. Right. And, mm-hmm. and putting drug treatment centers around in uh, like every neighborhood then you have to get everybody in those neighborhoods to say yes and agree to them yeah. open and find the money for it and it's just it's expensive and hard to do yeah. and so it's like all right yeah just fine we'll do a standing order for naloxone Great. yeah ah, 
Jeez, I can I can keep you here all day, but yeah, <laughs> no. Uh, a few months ago, I think it was actually last year, I wrote an article for Newsweek because they just announced that they were opening like safe injection sites in New York. Uh -huh. In New York, I was like, hey, newsflash, this isn't gonna help. Like it might help a little, but we need to get treatment. We need that, and and yeah, just like yeah. what you're saying, like it's easier to just say, hey, we have a safe place where we have naloxone that you can shoot up safely. That's the easier way, and. And yeah, I don't, I don't know what the solution is for that because people just want those easy fixes. And then they also want to neglect the type of research that you're doing. But anyways, I had you on. So everybody in my audience at least has the information and hopefully they're like, oh, wait, and you start thinking of things in different ways. So Jennifer, thank you so, so much for your time. For everybody listening and wants to learn more about your work, stuff you're doing. Uh, you mentioned you have a podcast. I found you on Twitter, but Give, give it all to me so people can follow you and keep up to them. Yeah. yeah, so um, my website is jenniferdoliak.com. D-O-L-E-A-C is the last name. Uh, I'm also Jennifer Doliak on Twitter. Um, and I do have this podcast, Probable Causation, if you're interested in research related to crime and the criminal justice system uh, and all that, and, and causal inference and how we figure this stuff out, figure out what works. Uh, you can hear from lots of great researchers there. Beautiful. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again when you have some more controversial research. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jennifer Doliak. And yeah, this this is an important conversation to have because like, like we were saying right there when we wrapped up, this is the easier solution, all right? This is the easier, this is the cheaper solution for all of us. It's easier to just equip people with Narcan, put it all around, but... Like, is it actually cheaper? Well, you know, not to get into the whole thing, but, you know, the opioid epidemic was started by Big Pharma. And this might be something I talk about in the more extensive video essay I do on this topic, but it was started by Big Pharma. Now Big Pharma is actually profiting off of, you know, quote unquote, trying to end the opioid epidemic. A lot of the people who started it are now making other harm reduction drugs like Suboxone and things like that. So we need to take a look at how, you know, we're trying to solve the problem with the same thing that started the problem, which is pharmaceuticals. But I can tell you as a recovering addict, the entire reason that I kept using was because uh, my life sucked. I was struggling with a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, different circumstances, such as my childhood, you know, being the son of an alcoholic mama. You know, there's so many different things that were going on. So just reviving me with Narcan or giving me a methadone clinic or anything, yes, they're gonna help me from dying, but we need to be trying to improve the quality of life for these people, and that's through treatment. That's through teaching people how to cope with the issues that they have stemming from their childhood, stemming from mental illness and all that. And yes, it's going to require more money to open up more, you know, state funded treatment centers or to provide people with, you know, more uh, better access to, to therapy. You know, that's one of the reasons I'm an advocate for, you know, Medicare for all, because along with that comes mental health care and all these other things. So right now we're putting a bandaid on that's not really doing its job. So I'm super grateful to people like Jennifer, who is doing this research, you know, taking the hits from the harm reduction community, because, you know, like I said, they come at you hard. So it's difficult, you know, to do this kind of research, to be vocal about it and all of that. So huge, huge thanks to Jennifer. Head down to the description below. Make sure you follow Jennifer over on Twitter. Make sure you check out her podcast. Stay tuned for her, you know, upcoming book and all that kind of stuff. 
And yeah, for all of you, uh, like I said, make sure to follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I've been putting out content other places. Uh, I actually just wrote a guest piece for Bridget Fetacy. She has a, uh, a newsletter called Politically Homeless, and I just wrote something for that. I've been writing for Business Insider. I wrote something not that long ago for Newsweek as well about, uh, you know, fentanyl coming in, and we talked a little bit, uh, it talks a little bit about immigration. But anyways, anyways. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul because I'm putting out a bunch of content. I've been uploading over to YouTube. The YouTube channel is the same as the podcast. It's just The Rewired Soul. So go check it out. Make sure you subscribe. I hope you've all been doing wonderful. And yeah, if I happen to get, you know, the urge to have a conversation with somebody about something, uh, every now and then I might be uploading a podcast episode. All right. So another huge thanks to Jennifer. Thanks for all of you for tuning in and sticking around. And yeah, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time. Thank you.